Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. Today's show, An Impossible Balance. Content platforms seem to have an insurmountable challenge. The balancing act of providing access, supporting free speech, and implementing editorial controls in an era of civil unrest and contentious conversations about diversity. As an organization, how can you support diversity if you're not willing to support views that vary from your own, even when those views are controversial? How can organizations develop a culture that supports marginalized groups when the same org provides an outlet for voices that are perceived to be attacking the same marginalized groups? Ultimately, can anyone truly create an unbiased platform and content brand at the same time, or do those just simply contradict each other? This and a number of other provocative questions on this episode of TDR. Jesus, lots to talk about here. Yeah, I think it's a very timely, per usual, very timely topic for us to be discussing. And but one, honestly, that's been around now for a while. And I think ever since the sort of creation of these large social uh, content platforms, I think this dynamic, this balancing act of trying to really be a place where people can have conversations, share content, create content, and yet still have editorial guidelines. It's just a really the tricky, tricky one. Uh, in general, and one that all of the platforms I've struggled with, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, for sure, right? Um, and, and I think part of that is also because the the, the kind of um, reference models, if you will, that we've had in the past have been like, well, it's either the phone company or it's a magazine. It's been these very simple kind of, you know, non-dynamic kind of platforms, right? So the idea of a magazine is something that has clearly an editorial point of view. People put together, they write it, they have opinions. That's in one category. The idea of a phone company is almost like just dumb pipes or electricity or something that people can't really have an opinion about. Right. But social is obviously combining those. And I think part of the background that came with this is that for such a long time, historically, the pipelines to get to reach audiences were so controlled by very few people, right? Traditionally, you had to either go through traditional media companies, radio, television, et cetera, of which you have a program director, someone that is basically making the decision whether or not they give you the airwaves to be able to talk to people. I think part of the promise and excitement about social specifically in some of these platforms is the fact that it allowed you very easily uh, and directly to be able to connect with audiences, right? And I think that created a great opportunity for a lot of voices that maybe previously weren't really heard to create following, to create content, 
And maybe wrongly, people sort of got the, the idea that they felt that these platforms really should have no guidelines whatsoever or no ability to censor, to modify any of the content that is there. And it's just not true. All platforms, first of all, all these platforms have content guidelines to begin with. And, uh, but those inevitably sort of come in conflict with some of the creators that are on those platforms. It definitely seems to be the conversation that at least is being had uh, with respect to these platforms and our government, right? So uh, conversations around congressional hearings, you know, the, the heads of all of these platforms recently had uh, a congressional opportunity to speak. And what I mean by all these platforms, I include Apple and Amazon in that as well. Basically, the Fang yeah. group, right? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, all these guys. I don't think Netflix was there actually, but most of them had an opportunity to speak at Congress. And it seemed that the that the choices, at least presented by the different Congress people, was binary, right? Either you are a publisher, that means you have a point of view, perspective, opinion, whatever. And as such, you can be held liable for those things. Or you are a platform which is open to everyone, free marketplace of ideas, et right. cetera, et cetera. And so it does seem to be at least framed in a very binary way. And I think that's actually a really good point that you're bringing up in terms of why that binary type of conversation is a fact, is liability is a big one, right? To the degree that the platforms are able to pretty much be at arm's length on the content, they can say, listen, we have content guidelines, but ultimately... Is whoever created that content that's, that really is responsible for that, for whatever is the, con- the context of that, of that content, then it gives them a little bit more sort of deniability as it relates to what's in there. Uh, but you're right. You, how do you do that and also monitor content, have guidelines, reward or punish content depending on, on what it is? And, and even some of these hearings that you, re- you referred to, part of the sort of the, the background here is that a lot of that also came from in response to everything from fake news to the role that social platforms play in, in you know, making people f- move either further to the right or further to the left. By, and then as it relates to some, some of the, the, the current government, it's also complaints that they believe that a lot of these platforms are very left-leaning and by just who they are, tend to punish more those more conservative voices, right? But you know what? I mean, I, I think in speaking to all of this, those are all sort of broad statements. But why don't we talk about, I think, one of the most recent ones that just came up and one that... You know, you and I, the second it got announced, we're very interested in this one. Uh, and, of course, we're talking about Joe Rogan, right? And just to give a little background, and I'm sure most people know this, but uh, the background here is Joe Rogan is actually one of the most successful podcasters out there, probably, probably in history in terms, of, in terms of audience. And for those that don't know who Joe Rogan is, Joe Rogan is a comedian. He's a, also a commentator for the UFC um, has done a bunch of reality television, was for a long time best known for uh, Fear Factor, if you right. remember that show. Even before that, though, he did a, a sitcom called News Radio back News, in yeah, the that's early right. 90s, so, I think. Yeah, so he's been on TV, but, but he's mostly yeah. a comedian and, yep. uh, and, and a fight commentator and someone that has a strong background in, uh, in martial arts, right? Um, but a very, very successful podcaster. Now, part of what made him very successful is the fact that I think Joe Rogan has been one of the few examples of, of a person that really tries to go out of his way to bring in different points of view into his podcast. Has a pretty broad range of, of guests, and a big part because of who he is, right? Um, and he is, himself is very interested in a lot of different things. So he brings everything from comedians, fighters, 
uh, people that are in the political world, authors, kind of across the board. He's also been doing the podcast thing for like a long time, yeah, a long for time. 10 yeah, years yeah, yeah. plus at least. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he's been doing it for, for a while. So recently uh, it was announced uh, that Spotify has signed a $100 million deal to exclusively license uh, the Joe Rogan content. And, and in this case, it was actually for both the audio and the video, right? So the idea here is that they were going to take both the library content uh, of all the Joe Rogan episodes, move it over to Spotify, and also any new episodes will be exclusive to Spotify after some period, which is still happening now, of which they're still running in the multiple platforms, including Apple Podcasts and, and other places, right? Uh, that deal got announced uh, early in the year, but officially sort of came into effect at the beginning of this month in September. Now, one of the most interesting things about this deal when it was announced, and this came specifically from Joe Rogan, is that he mentioned that Spotify would have no editorial control at all with his content. Yep. Now, it's important because, you know, Joe Rogan, as part of his style of interviewing folks, not only does he bring a lot of different voices, but it's a very casual, cursing, cursing a lot. I mean, it's, it's very much his style of, of content, which obviously has, has created this massive audience, massive following, and I'm sure for Spotify, something they wanted to you know, be able to tap into. Now, there was immediate controversy the second that content went over to Spotify, and specifically because there were a number of episodes that were not moved over, from his library, and all from ultra-conservative, you know, slightly, or maybe more than slightly, controversial guests, which included folks like Alex Jones from of InfoWars, who, by the way, was banned by Spotify, but I looked into it, it was also banned by YouTube, Facebook, Stitcher, Apple, Pinterest, LinkedIn. So yeah, he was completely There's a pattern there, right? There's yeah. a banning. But nevertheless, it's someone that he has a, had actually interviewed. Uh, also, Proud Voice founder Gavin McGinnis, uh, also the, also the founder of Vice, by the way. People don't ever mention that. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I didn't know one that. One of the founders of Vice. Yeah, yeah super interesting. Uh, ex Breibart, uh, news editor Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Charles C. Johnson, um, and then uh, other folks like Owen Benjamin and, uh, and Carl Benjamin. Basically, a number of different episodes, all of which were probably more in that controversial category. Personally, I never actually listened to any of these, but the fact that they weren't moved over immediately there was some response out there of signaling like, hey, is this a, a, a sort of early sign of Joe Rogan getting his content neutered in some way or another, being that some of the content that maybe was more controversial was not going to be um, put it over. And then more importantly, what does that mean for new content going forward? So we thought about the deal and you and I talked about it before, Charlie, but what was your immediate response to the deal itself, to the fact that some of that content wasn't <laughs> moved over? Yeah, give me, give me your first your first take. You, you know that I've hated this deal since the moment it was announced. You've I, been very I, consistent. I, I have to give you that. You immediately were not a fan. Very, very, uh, I think it's a huge mistake. I think it's a mistake for, um, for Rogan. I think ultimately this is the beginning of a lot of things that will, you know, inevitably lead um, to either a neutering, to use your word, um, or to a shrinking um, of his audience and his potential on this particular platform. And here's what I mean by that. I think that, you know, for the most part, the reason that he has become, and I think since the election of Donald Trump, frankly, he's just exploded these last four years because he's been doing this, I think, since, I want to say since 2008 or nine. Uh, I don't know if you, if you came across the... Um, yeah, I don't have it. Yeah, he's been, I mean, obviously he's been doing it for a while. Yeah, he's been doing it for at least a decade. Like yeah. that, that part I think I yeah. know. And he was one of the very early podcast pioneers. And yeah, he's had a platform. I mean, he's been to your point a comedian and 
Fear Factor was a big show back in the day and all that. But like he kind of broke. He's at another sphere now, though. He's in he a completely different level. Last few years. Actually, he, he sometimes because I have heard on on a on a show when he was talking about somebody like Jimi Hendrix, which is what the show is. His show is named after the Joe Rogan Experience is named after or is an homage to the Jimi Hendrix experience. Oh, interesting. He's hmm. mentioned um, Jimi Hendrix as somebody who, quote, broke the membrane. That's how he describes it. It's almost like you kind of just pierce through and something and you become this thing that's everywhere. So he's done that himself. But yeah. I think it's been over the last maybe three or four years, I think, that that actually has happened where he's broken over, uh, broken into this thing. Because I think if you would have mentioned Rogan five years ago, I think it would have been a completely different response from most people in polite society. But it would have been maybe in the category of like early Howard Stern, right? Of like, oh, like it's the kind of thing you don't you don't talk about at polite places or at work right. or whatever. And one of those topics you avoid at work kind of thing, right? Like <laughs> religion and politics. It was, it, was in, it was in that category. And now it's like it's mainstream. It's very mainstream. So yeah. I think part of it has been that. I think what led to that kind of success – from my standpoint, to touch on what you've shared, is this idea of he's created these very interesting, long-form conversations with a lot of times people who are very controversial in their own right, and one guest who's controversial for being way on the left is followed by somebody who's controversial for being way on the right. And it's and he's able, because I think he's a good listener fundamentally, at having conversations with people and letting them kind of unspool and so I think that just the whole idea of what his show is lends itself to this idea of being available and open to everybody, right? In fact, that's kind of his brand is that it's like everybody can right. get it, man, you know, and I'm a moron and like just anybody can listen and I don't know what I'm talking about. It's just like it's open to everybody. And so I think part of that idea of free for everyone and now having it be an exclusive thing for Spotify, to me, that's the immediate point of jarring. The second thing is, I could have told you, and I think we did talk about this, once something becomes exclusive, and especially with a figure like him, you're going to have people that eventually start piping up and saying, wait a minute, this isn't okay, this is okay. And he tried to preempt that with this idea that nobody's going to have creative control. But man, you and I know, we've worked at these places, right? I mean, he's yeah. basically been kind of a really successful pirate for like 10 years. Now he's not. Now he's a, on somebody's cruise yeah, ship. That's a really good way to describe him, right? Because it's not just the fact that he brings in people that have very different points of view, but it's the, the approach, right? I mean, there's a guy that there was a lot of coverage about him when he brought in Elon Musk, and then they both were smoking weed on, on the show live, yeah. and people were giving Elon Musk kind of a you know, hard time. But for Joe Rogan, that's not an uncommon thing. Sure. Drinking, smoking weed, dropping mushrooms, acid, mushrooms uh, I mean, DMT. So obviously he has he you know he he more sort of marches at his own beat right to to a large extent. So that does create that kind of immediate controversy. But, but, but I guess the, the question yeah. for you is like he was already on. I mean he's massive on YouTube as well, right. which is a platform that also has content guidelines that has you know some level of editorial control. Why did you think? What was your reaction as strong as it was? Because YouTube as really specifically to Spotify, right? Because this YouTube other doesn't YouTube doesn't care about him, just like they don't care necessarily about any one particular creative or another, right? YouTube is a scale play. They tried to get into the kind of content world. They launched something called Red, and that became YouTube Originals, and then ultimately. 
the best of that left the world was Cobra Kai, which is actually a pretty decent show. So you, who has, anyone who hasn't seen it, that actually originated as a Google original, YouTube original, whatever. But they, they, they're, that's not their thing. They're a scale platform. They're, the, Google is in the world of like making knowledge accessible, but they're, they don't take a position, right? So ultimately, when it's with YouTube, they don't care. Now enter Spotify. Spotify cares. Spotify is a brand. Spotify has created original content, and I know that they definitely are looking to create more and exclusive content. This deal as evidence of that. And so I think ultimately what this does is it forces them to say, this is now our guy. This is our guy. He's on our team. It's exclusive to us. He's not on YouTube anymore after whenever it is, the first or just later in this year. And that brings in a whole host of new decisions, which is why I think ultimately this deal is bad for Rogan. I think it's bad for Rogan's fans. And ultimately, it may be bad for Spotify. Although at this present moment, their stock has gone up. Right. I think something like, was it $10 billion in market cap in value just since yeah, the announced know, yeah. deal? So it's already yeah, it was a positive, itself. Obviously a positive signal for the market, right? Yeah. Um, now, the one thing I would push back on what you just said mm -hmm. is the fact that you're saying that YouTube doesn't care. I think YouTube does care. Now, YouTube... In really how we started this conversation, in this balancing act between platform and brand, I think YouTube is seen more as platform than content brand. And it may be more of a function because their own content has kind of not done great. And really most of the success, let's be honest, right? Yeah. Most of the success has actually come from being a platform. But YouTube has had a lot of controversy as it relates to what content they promote sure. within their algorithm, uh, who gets demonetized, which is a big sort of lever that they use the second they feel something is contra too controversial to get associated with brands, they just demonetize it. And, you know, one of the big events that I think about is the shooting that they had in their campus, uh, you know, up, up in the Bay Area. And part of it was, was because of this creator who, you know, obviously has some issues. But her main complaint was the fact that her content was getting demonetized because it had, you know, it was being seen as, as controversial. So they've been in that sort of, also yeah. in that category quite a bit. But I do agree with you that in this context of, of platform versus brand, maybe they're still more much of a platform. And then the other thing that I think is an important element of distinction is that it's not exclusive, right? While Joe Rogan has quite a bit of audience on YouTube, at least my understanding was that it was not an exclusive deal for YouTube, meaning that he could have that video content there and elsewhere. It just happened to do much better there. And let me qualify my YouTube statement because what I mean by them not caring is really not caring about the maker, not caring about the creator, right? Even this disgruntled person who went and did something violent and stupid was upset at them because they didn't care, right? right? Because they were demonetizing her or whatever. Um, I think that's different than a brand locking arms with somebody and saying, you're only available here. And we're going to give you this extra love and this extra distribution. And I'm sure there's a billion and one marketing benefits and whatever else. But um, but getting back to, to to this you know idea of um, of the show on Spotify, I was definitely uh, bearish about it early. I think the other thing is the shows that didn't make it over. Yes, agreed, controversial. Even some of them had already been banned on that platform, which I guess I can understand. You know, the Alex Jones one, it's like, hey, sorry, you've already been banned on this before, so you're not going to make the move That's with us. That's probably the only one that I could sort of see, be like, okay, I, I yeah. kind of get the rationale. But without saying I agree with any of the people who were who were who didn't make the move to Spotify, and because I don't know the shows, I haven't heard them, I don't know if I agree or disagree, probably for the most part would disagree, but nevertheless, that's further evidence of 
you know, tainting what made the show what it is. And right. so it's to a bad, me, I mean, ultimately it's a bad signal, right? And it's a bad signal for Joe Rogan, for his fans who like praise him for being, you know, for, for the approach that he takes and being that place where people can have these kind of conversations. It's not good from that standpoint. And what was interesting, and it was kind of done without any kind of public fanfare, but yet immediately people picked up on the fact that these episodes were missing and it was immediately reported and on social spheres, a lot of conversation around it. Yeah, and I, and I can understand why um, you know fans of the show would be saying, "Hey, this is a little bit hypocritical." I think the other part of it is there's so much money at stake, right? The hundred million dollar valuation of this deal has been really well publicized, and I think people look at that and go, "Hey, you know what? Maybe this is why I think it's bad for him, for Joe. Maybe he this is not what he really believes, and maybe he the money was just too good, and he's right. okay Could with sell out." Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. so it, it introduces all this stuff. I think it's furthered by some of the actions that we've now begun to hear about with some of the, um, you know, the employees looking to get yeah. some editorial control. So, yeah, so let's talk about that, yeah. right? So there was an article that was written by Vice that came out um, last week, September 16th, and it basically documented some of the internal uh, issues that have been ha- going on within Spotify as employees have been raising a lot of concerns specifically around what they, you know, uh, present as the views and and, top, and conversations that are being shared within the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, and these are sort of tend to be focused, or at least have been to date, more focused on some of the topics specifically related to transgender individuals. And there's two that sort of kind of come to mind, although, although there is a little bit of a history with Joe Rogan in terms of his controversial sort of positions regarding transgender. So one is there was a recent episode uh, where Rogan explained Basically, the makings of a joke that he had as part of his act uh, that he did in 2016 about Caitlyn Jenner's transition, describing Jenner as he and using her dead name, Bruce, and kind of went into the explanation of how he came about with that joke. And, of course, joking about it as as doing it, but obviously for for people that are a lot more um, sensitive to to that topic are going to obviously have a reaction. There was also a recent uh, interview that he did with an author uh, and writer Abigail Schreier, who uh, wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Full episode talking about this, of which also people in that, you know, in, in the LGBTQ camp, will, of course, will find very controversial and, and not support. And then I think in general, uh, Rogan has taken a somewhat controversial position regarding transgender athletes competing in female leagues. And, and I think he, bring, he comes from the perspective, of course, from the world of fighting, but he's something that he brings up quite a bit. Basically, the combination of all these these things has resulted inside of Vice uh, of basically having all-hands meetings with in which Spotify CEO Daniel Ek discussed the company's handling of the controversial uh, sort of topics related to Joe Rogan's experience. Um, they claim that a total of 10 meetings have been held with various groups of individuals uh, to hear their respective concerns. Now, some of the questions that were reported by Vice included such things such as um, and I quote, many LGBTQA AI plus ally and Spotifyers feel unwelcome and alienated because of leadership's response in Jerry, JRE's conversations, Joe Rogan's uh, experienced conversations. What is your message to those employees? And what that question really sort of speaks to is sort of this misalignment between what is some of the um, values and, and possible how some of the individuals feel within the organization of Spotify and then the leadership position that once they were report, like you know, employees were reporting some of these episodes, leadership decided that after review that they were going to leave the episodes there. They basically did not go on the side of employees. So it's created this this sort of big controversy internally. Yeah. 
which is something that, you know, it, it could have been very easily, and I think we kind of did, easily predict that this was going to become a problem. But maybe speak to that. When, we, when you saw what, that kind of report, yeah. what was your initial sort of response to that? Another reason why I don't think this is going to end well, right? You have, we've had 10 meetings on this. The guy's been on the platform for like 10 days, right? Two weeks. Yeah. It's a meeting a day. <laughs> On on uh, on controversies around Joe Rogan, it's it's going to create or has the potential to create division culturally inside of Spotify, which wouldn't be good for them. Has a ten, ha, has a potential to water down and neuter the show, which wouldn't be good for Rogan. And ultimately, look, the reason I think that um, this is a much more important issue than maybe even even Joe Rogan is there's such few places in media right now that are even spaces for conversations at all at all. And I think that that almost is the most important reason why if this show is negatively impacted, it would be a loss for everyone. It doesn't matter what your position is on Joe Rogan. I think the idea of him creating a space for conversation is a good thing, even if it means people, you know, even disagreeing with the people that he brings um, on board. Specific to this editorial team, because I think the, the, the idea of having meetings or people being concerned or, or whatever – yeah, that's that, fine. That happens, sure. That's going to come up, and that's going to happen. You and I have done this in in our corporate lives and had meetings and things that, or rumor milling when people were were saying, "Hey, we're having a bad quarter," or Company X is sniffing around looking to buy us. What does that mean? All that stuff, very yeah. normal. Yeah, okay, yeah. but what really concerns me is this idea of kind of an editorial team, which is what I read in, um, or actually, not, I'm sorry, I didn't read it, but I but I saw it in a in a recent uh, video interview about, you know, a team that is inside of Spotify that's looking to create kind of an editorial board or review board that would be responsible for actually listening to all the content of the shows prior to them being published and then issuing things, if appropriate, like red flags or trigger warnings or even refusing to publish this. I don't know how that happens. And then it's also true that Rogan said that there would be no creative control that Spotify would have. Those are mutually exclusive yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they are. Although I would say that the the having an editorial board or team that reviews content and decides, therefore, that content should be shared within the platform or not is actually a very common practice. It happens at Facebook and YouTube and Snapchat. All of these have editorial controls. I think the point of of, of rub here that, we, yeah. that we're talking about is specifically is that you can't have both things be true. You can't have editorial control and review and pre-approve Joe, Joe Rogan's content, and from Joe Rogan say that they're gonna have no editorial say whatsoever on his content. Like those two things think, just don't yeah. exist. They don't coexist. They don't coexist. You're right. I also think it's a little bit different in the case of the platforms because you're right. The platforms do have a process. Usually, from what I understand, that refers to flagged content, right? So things that have been flagged by the community, and so they will review those things. Now, in this case. Maybe every episode since September 1st has been flagged. I don't know. That information I don't have. That is possible. Maybe that's the process that it, that it engages in. But the idea of reviewing content has never been a scale thing. It's impossible to do at scale. Right. This seems very focused on him, on reviewing him. Yeah, this and is I think, very – yeah, I, I sort of saw the same thing. And, and that's what makes it really problematic, right, is – so let's, let's say we, we all agree that the reality is these are, are not 100% public – platforms, right? In the sense that all of them do have editorial content guidelines, right? So they already are putting levels of restriction in terms of what can be shared in these platforms. All of them have some level of process for what gets approved and what doesn't. Because to the point we said earlier, Alex Jones got kicked off the platform. So someone had to review it, say, hey, we either agree, don't disagree that this 
the content that he, that he, that he's sharing uh, does not adhere to our guidelines. Do that enough time, you get kicked off. So there's already some precedent there. Um, what, what's tough about it, I think, are are is the combination of if you really are trying to focus this specifically on Joe Rogan, like that is wrong in, in any way you want to put it, right? That you're only going to look at his content view that way. The challenge here is that those kind of processes are really hard to do at scale, right? And this is part of the reason why when you, you said earlier, it is true that many of the approach that some of these platforms have taken is to actually have uh, ability or mechanisms where content can be flagged by the community and that sort of, sort of kickstarts the process of, of review because when you have just so much volume of content, it's just really hard to, to adhere to that or to be able to manage all of that. But you got to imagine when you are a big personality, I guess a lot of audience, just by definition, you're going to have a lot more eyes on it. So the likelihood of someone flagging it, I mean, could I see people that are Spotify listeners flagging that, that content that Joe Rogan had based on those, those topics that we, that we talked about? Sure. Someone will have an issue with it. Yeah. So the question still goes back to the same point is like, well, is it going to get flagged? Probably by somebody. But really, how do you um, keep this sort of type of discussion in a platform like Spotify without getting into this sort of world of having to now try to control what that content actually is? And in the, in the background of, of, uh, of this time that we're living in, right, a lot of racial reckoning, a lot of issues with diversity and people wanting to use this time to really put into effect real change of how diverse people are treated, how they're supported. And that, to me, that's actually the bigger issue here, right? Is that you have an employee base within Spotify, and I don't know, you know, from the group that's being vocal, is that a minority of the group or is that everyone? I, no idea, right? But it, on, the, on the one hand, as a CEO, I'm sure uh, Spotify is trying to create an environment uh, that feels supportive to all groups, including the LGBTQ community that is in there, doing that, and at the same time knowing that some of the content that you have, just by its pure nature of what it is, it's going to rub them the wrong way. It just is. Even if it's not, it doesn't have to be hate speech, by the way, to rub people the wrong way. It's just some of the topics that are being brought up are, are and the some bigger that are going to be are, like, yeah. you know, just controversial by by the pure, the, the second you say transgender in some of those topics, it's going to be controversial. And the minute, your point earlier about the bigger you are, the more eyes are on you, well, also the more potential disagreements there are over what, what it is you're saying, right? I mean, you're right. It doesn't necessarily have to fall into a category of, legal protection, like, um, you know, inciting violence or all this other stuff, but it could just be a subject matter and that alone can be a cause of controversy. I think for me, um, you know, what does something like somebody like Spotify do about this? It comes back to me on leadership. And I do want, I mean, at, at least it appears at this moment that the leadership of Spotify has told the people that are complaining about this that we hear you, but we disagree with you. In other words, we we yeah. hear you, but we're going to still go on this particular way. Yeah. And and that's a hard thing to do. So I do give credit if that is in fact what's happened. I do give credit credit to those folks who have done it. But ultimately, for the, for me, this is about setting expectations among your employee population and defining things. Like for instance, what do we mean by diversity? You and I launched this podcast, and I think we'd gotten. 45 seconds done of our first episode, and we were already talking about, hey, this is what we mean when we say diversity, right? right? If I work at Spotify and I think diversity means race, sexual orientation, gender, whatever, those few things, right? And then somebody comes and says, hey, we're going to have this, this podcaster on an exclusive contract that I can't stand because of his positions— 
And I don't know that the diversity definition includes someone I may disagree with. Well, it's obvious that I'm going to be upset, right? So I lay a lot of this too at the feet of leaders to properly communicate what they mean by certain things, right? And I think actually Spotify issued a uh, some kind of comment about this. They did, about yeah. This. I have it here. I mean, yeah. their spokesperson said, um, and I quote, all employees are respected and we believe that everyone has a right to be heard. We had a number of forums for open, uh, for open and transparent discussion, and we encourage rigorous debate on topics across the company. All content on Spotify is subject to our long, longstanding content guidelines, and they mentioned that their diverse team of experts reviewed the content in question and determined that it did not meet the criteria for removal from, a, from the platform. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from a process standpoint, I mean, they're saying, obviously, listen, we have content guidelines. They got flagged by them by employees, or even if it's, I'm sure, you know, listeners. Um, they reviewed it and didn't didn't see that it that it met that um, the criteria for for removal. It it still creates I think a really interesting dynamic. So I think there's there's a couple of things. One is you're you're entirely right. Is that when we talk about diversity, we're very intentional of also including diversity of thought in that definition because I think that's the one element that does get excluded, and I feel like it's more excluded now than maybe before, in the sense that. You know, people are also uncomfortable having uncomfortable conversations. And that's natural, by the way. Everybody's sure. uncomfortable doing that. We, I mean, we, we've talked pretty openly about, you know, I've shared, I've been pretty honest about my just gut reaction whenever I hear President Trump speak, yep. right? I just have such a negative reaction to just hearing his voice, let alone it. So you can see how that obviously influences my point of view or anything that he says. Um, so you're so, not a fan, Jesus, is what you're saying. Yeah, not, not, the, not the best fan, not the biggest fan of, of him. Um, but I also understand and truly respect the value that having diversity of thought brings to the table when having these kind of conversations. But it's a tough one. I think it does go back to what are the what are the values of the organization of Spotify, right? Because you could be supportive of diversity, but one of your corporate values is more related to how people feel included. And yeah. to the degree that people are feeling either further marginalized because of because of opinions that someone's bringing to the table. That could be something that as an organization, you just want to believe and say, hey, we don't want to have, we don't want anyone in our company to feel like they're being further marginalized because we are a platform that's allowing for a certain type of conversation that with intent or not, and even if it's not hate, like hate crime or, 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 or hate speech, it could still have the ultimate result of having part of our employees feel even further marginalized, having their identity further questioned. And therefore, we're not going to allow that. And Spotify has 100% the right to do that. Right. This is why I think it's kind of a, in some ways, the whole platform conversation. I feel like the reality is none of them are unbiased platforms. None of them are. They mm-hmm. all have editorial guidelines. Mm-hmm. And it just comes down to how you want to operate your organization. To what degree do you value the sort of internal dynamics of your employees and how individuals feel versus being a platform and saying, no, no, we really believe in diversity in all conversations. And even when it's uncomfortable, when we don't like it, we still think that's such an important thing that we're gonna that we're gonna create the opportunity for those discussions to be had. And I think that's the issue that that Spotify is facing here. I like what that press release said about um, rigorous debate and um, supporting all employees. I think is what it said. Um, I think both of those things are really key to creating the kind of environment that, frankly, they're going to need. Because if they don't succeed at selling that press release inside of Spotify, it's not going to end well. It's going to be very ugly. And, you know, people, it's going to get, you know, factioned. And, you know, especially when you consider that a huge part of their potential success 
in audio is going to be based on the success of this show that is so controversial. Certainly the PR and earned media value of it and the stock value of it has already paid massive dividends. So if they don't clarify that and put a line in the sand and say, guys, this is what we mean when we say that we believe in diversity and turn it into a positive, it, you know, they, they, they run a big risk. And I think the other risk is, you know, kind of a, my last point on the sort of Rogan thing is they also run the risk of alienating him as a maker, right? In fact, just— uh, I'm sure it's already happened. I it's, mean, it's, it's happening, it's already, if yeah. not. Well, the funny thing is that he, um, um, he apologized uh, yesterday. Was it yesterday or today? No, uh, whole, it, was, it was a couple of days ago. But yeah, which I was going to talk about next, right? And this is the part that gets tricky about Joe Rogan because yeah. on the one hand— you know, we're talking about it in the context, a very positive context, in the sense of being this place, this forum, to have this open conversation where literally two different, very extreme points of view can come in to the middle and 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 then talk, right? So we need that more in the world. But also Joe Rogan, and as someone, by the way, myself, who listens to him a lot, I listen to a lot of his uh, of his episode, can also be slightly responsible about the positions that he takes. And there's, and I, have, I think I've shared this with you multiple times, Charlie, which is one of my biggest frustrations with Joe Rogan is that he will sit there episode over episode and spew things as fact. But the second someone that actually knows the topic better than him pushes up, put it back on him, his immediate response is like, well, what is it to me for? I'm a moron. Like, I'm a comedian. I'm a, I'm a you know. So immediately that's his, like his card yeah. that he just drops, his trump card, right, to wash away any kind of personal responsibility for anything that he said. And his whole point is like, if you're looking at me for political guidance, for anything, any kind of like real data, then you, then you shouldn't be talking or listening to me. Which to me is like, what a cop-out. Like either own the positions that you do or don't. So recently, and this happened, I think also it was episodes last week, is that he made a comment in, w- in, one, of the, in one of the episodes where he basically spread a false rumor that has been going, going around of Antifa being basically setting some of the fires that happened in Oregon. Now, you said it during the show, immediately got called out by a bunch of people. And then, honestly, Joe Rogan is not one to apologize or even acknowledge social this commentary. This is exactly the point I was going to make. He, he, I mean, to my knowledge, he's never... That's and exactly he's other, the point he, I was going to make. Before, but I don't, I don't think he's ever actually talked about it. I'm sure he, maybe yeah. he has, but I can't think of anything recently where he went on Instagram mm-hmm. and did a full-on apology because he was entirely wrong. Yeah. It was a someone that sent him a clip about something. He looked at it. And this is, and as a matter of fact, that rumor specifically was one that has been, that had been flagged recently in the press that it was one that was being pushed by, um, was it, um, QAnon? I always forget the, the acronym for the other. For oh, the, um, uh, QAnon, QAnon, right? QAnon. QAnon, sorry. Yeah. That it was one of those sort of fake rumors that was being spread that Antifa is going out setting these fires. Look at all these terrible things. And, and I think that's the thing that, with Joe Rogan apologizing, I think it's also a big indicator of maybe where his head is at and also having to be a little more sensitive to the fact that sometimes there's things that I am saying that are wrong and now do I have to be in this going out and addressing it? And what happens in terms of his credibility with the audiences where now he's like, wait a minute, now you're apologizing? And now every Why time, are you apologizing? Yeah, this is, this is well, precisely... Why, why are you apologizing? Precisely what I meant when I brought up the issue of his apology. And look, I, I'm a big fan of apologizing if you do something wrong. And I try to in my own personal life to, to never forget that. And I'm wrong a lot. So I like, and at a human level, the idea of, um, of apologies. Having said that, I, the first thing I thought about was exactly what you just said, which is I can't remember the last time that he said, hey, you know what, when I... 
said that about the greatest, uh, the greatest boxer in the world, um, I, it was just my opinion. It wasn't really uh, a fact or whatever, whatever it may have happened to be. So I, you know, I, I, I remarked on the fact that, um, that that apology was significant because I could imagine, even though I have no evidence of this, full disclaimer, no evidence, but I could imagine the CEO of Spotify sending a little note to his agent going, hey, uh, did this happen on my platform? Uh, can you talk to him about that? And then having him issue that tweet, you know, because it's a brand new relationship, we want to make nice. I could totally imagine that conversation happening between agents, managers, Rogan, and the highest level of brass at Spotify. Because I can't remember another time where he came out and said, "Yeah, like I may have been, I may have been wrong about this, right?" And I'm not saying that it was that it's an, a, a thing that's insignificant. It's it is significant. You don't want to be spreading something that's false. But the way that he talks is also like, "Oh, I heard somebody said something nutty." He's probably said that ten thousand times about other things. Right. And I just found it significant that he apologized. Um, because again, I could imagine those kind of behind the scenes machinations. But, but going don't you on. think that's kind of the, the little bit of the scary part of, of this kind of sort of forum, I guess, for conversations is the fact that he has a massive, massive audience. And what I worry about is that for how many of his fans do they treat what he says as gospel? right? Everything he says, right? And he's the first to admit, and this is why I find it hilarious that he's the first to admit, like, I'm a moron. And he, he says that all the time. Now, yeah. I think he does, obviously he does it. He's actually a really smart guy who reads a lot, who is like super well-versed in a lot of different things, but has very strong points of view of, of a lot of items. Part of the reason why I got into mm-hmm. listening to Joe Rogan because I felt like it was a good way for me to kind of hear what the other side talks about in a forum where I could where it's easier for me to sort of digest that. Like I had a hard time with some of the very alt-right personalities and and I just have a hard time listening to some some of these folks. But like a Joe Rogan where he is definitely more and for some issues more left-leaning, much more centered than a lot of other other items as a forum to to hear what other people are are saying that maybe that that, that are sort of outside of my immediate sort of media circle. uh, I find it really interesting, but it does concern me with him of how quick he is to say, make these statements without any actual facts until once again someone pushes on him and then he'll give the the, the typical, well, I'm a moron, what he listen to me for? Yeah, a couple things. I think um, for him, the whole idea of, hey, I'm, you know, don't listen to me, I'm a moron, all that stuff. And I agree with you that he is knowledgeable on a lot of things. I do think that he came to that knowledge as an adult. So I think he grew up in kind of a tough way. And yeah. And maybe just in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years has kind of educated himself about a, a number of things. So I think he feels authentic still saying, hey, I'm a dummy because I, I kind of maybe grew up a dummy and right. like, didn't go, do, go to all the fancy schools and learn all the things. Yeah, he literally said, but like, uh, I've been kicked in the head so many times. Exactly. Right? Like, why and, that's, to me? and that's my guess, by the way. But, um, but it does touch on something you've mentioned a few times, which is this whole way of argumentation. And we'll we'll get to the other deep dives. So I want to make this entire show about a critique of his show. But but um, his style of argumentation to me, I commented to one of our clients recently that he has this sort of fallacy on the left and a fallacy on the right, which is really interesting. The fallacy on the left is he oftentimes engages in sort of circular logic, like he'll say no one should have an ideology, which is itself an ideology, yeah, right? Yeah. So he does that, which is a very uh, something that you see a lot in in maybe left leaning conversations, and on the right leaning conversations, he appeals a lot to authority, right? So he'll say, "Don't listen to me. Listen to this person who has a stamp by their name 
and they're the ones who are gospel. Like the moment that somebody in a white lab coat says something, boom, it's gospel. And to me, that's, I understand the reason for that, but that can also lead you to following some people just because they're credentialed that may also have an agenda right. or a point of view or whatever. So he falls into both of those camps in terms of how he argues things, which I think is fascinating because you usually find one or the other, but not both simultaneously. In terms of your question about like, you wonder about people listening and do they just believe this? I don't know the answer to that, but I would theorize that the solution to that never happening, that people just mindlessly follow things robot robotically is more forums like his. Not yeah, less. More, con more conversation. More conversation. Yeah, In other words, I agree like, with that. You see what I'm saying? So it's almost like, yeah, there may be some, there may be like some fringe group who's like, oh, Rogan said Antifa did everything. Let me go do something I shouldn't do. But I think the benefit of just the dialogue means there's less of those folks, not more. And, and that's to me the kind of bigger part of it. Yeah. Do you see any do you see any positive scenario of where this sort of looks okay? For, for Joe Rogan within a Spotify environment, especially especially as it now goes fully exclusive, where that continues, where that sort of you have a better balancing act between that and sort of the internal dynamics it, of the organization. It depends on what you that. it depends on what you mean by by sort of, you know, imagining a scenario that's good or or that people are happy with. I think you look at Howard Stern, he seems happy. You know, he seems he's got lots of money and whatever. But if you look at his whole career and timeline, there's definitely been a moment where he kind of peaked and became this, you know, broke the membrane again. Right. And then now is in the tail of his kind of career. So if that's okay, then yes, I could imagine a scenario where Rogan would be okay, but I don't think that there's any return to what that show was on an open platform within Spotify. Yeah, and, and I think like in the context, you know, for Howard Stern, which is I know we wanted to talk about a little bit as well, what's interesting with him is that, and I just don't recall this, maybe it did happen, and we, I guess we, you know, we didn't really look it up, but... When he moved over from terrestrial to to uh, um, to satellite radio, um, I don't recall seeing all of this sort of controversy, especially from employees there, about some of the things that obviously Howard Stern has said. Now, I wonder how much of this had to do with who Howard Stern has been um, and what his brand has always been, a brand of controversy. In many cases, controversy for the sake of controversy, which is not the case of Joe Rogan. Meaning that when you're listening to Howard Stern, you also knew that you were walking into a little bit of a, into a circus and kind of could expect just craziness. So in some ways, it excuses some of the bad behavior, honestly, that, get, that it gets displayed, some of the bad things that get said that will typically offend a lot of people. But it's in a context of like, this is pure comedy, pure ridiculousness. No one's taking this serious. There isn't a concern that someone, the average person listens to this and say, oh, well, Howard Stern said it. Therefore, it must be 100% true. Do, do you think that played a factor huge, as to why it's, it's huge, seriously very different? Huge factor. And in fact, I hadn't thought about it that way. So it's actually really cool that you mentioned it. it. It definitely had a big role to play, this sort of suspension of disbelief. If you walked into that studio or were listening to that show, you knew you were going to hear like purposely outlandish things. That right. was the, at least in the height. I haven't listened to Howard Stern in, I don't know, maybe... 12 years, 13. So I'm not a current listener of his, but I remember when I was like early in my career or even like coming out of college, the kind of outlandish things that he would do. And that's, that was your expectation. So that's a big point. But the other one is even simpler than that, that Howard Stern's career and his deal from terrestrial to Sirius or to satellite rather was still around the context of live entertainment. 
that was the big issue. That's the big difference maker. So you almost didn't know what he was capable of doing, right? The deal was to put him on this platform and have him just start talking. And people were like, no, have you heard what he said 10 years ago? You don't know what he's capable of. But it was never about like, digitizing 10 years worth of things, looking at them oh, and go, I, I understand you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So, and the fact that this is an on-demand, an audio is an on-demand yeah, I mean, platform. I think what you're getting at here is because of the, the exact nature of podcasts where you are recording and, and keeping potentially for eternity, right? Um, what your view has been on a specific topic, the fact that it is easy to sort of go back and look at his like episodes that happened years ago, 10 years ago, and, and pull out that one quote or something that you said at that moment, right? It, it does create additional layer of scrutiny, an opportunity to obviously go back and, and really hash things out and, and really call out things that you may be disagreeing with. I think that's Howard Stern probably benefited quite a bit from not having that kind of dynamic in his, um, in his career, at least for the type of content that he creates. But the biggest driver for him to go, getting off of terrestrial into satellite was specifically because he kept on just getting fined all the time. Yeah. I remember this was a case where like the FCC was constantly finding them. I think it was he was with CBS Radio. I forget who who the yeah, who the broadcaster was. was. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, at some point he was with I think a lot of different radio stations, but I think most famously he was with CBS. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, he was well, he was syndicated, but mm -hmm. but uh, I think it was CBS Radio. But in, in any case, he just kept on getting fined over and over again. So a lot of the driver for him was listen. I want to get in a place where I could fully control exactly what I want to say. I don't have to wor worry about getting my content neutered, right? In this case, before it was by, by, by an agency, uh, by the FCC, and going to satellite was like his, you know, you could expand his, his wings and have full control, which when you hear from that perspective, it sounds a little bit of what Joe Rogan has, and he kind of created that on his own because of being in a sort of, very early in the game of, for, for podcast. Um, but the net result really for Howard is that his level of influence and culture did diminish, I mean, the reality is while he had it more did. control about his content and what he can say, and, and people still know who Howard Stern is, and he still has a certain level of popularity, but nowhere near no. what, what it was when he was on, on broadcast. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I think a big part of it is what you, you know, what you just described that I can see happening to Joe Rogan as well. I think you have to pick as a maker. Are you going to be available to everybody to be free to deal with the issues of being demonetized by platforms or not controlling, in quotes, your own distribution and your own kind of marketing? Or are you going to try for a more kind of curated approach where you're going to have to live on some level with the values of the people that are paying you? And that's going to dictate your ultimate reach and your ultimate influence in, in culture. I think it's very hard to have both. Yeah, I agree with that. So when we look at sort of wh where do we go from here, right? Because there is definitely this going to be this ongoing dynamics, ongoing fight between being a platform that is to the extent that they can be unbiased and being a forum where conversations can be had at the same time creating an environment, a culture where people who work there feel supported. Well, what are some of your thoughts in terms of the things that can be done that companies can look at to try to find that balance? The first one is what I've already mentioned, which is you have to be constantly educating and sharing with your employee population what you mean by certain things and defined terms, inclusive of what, how you view your own company, right? What is this company? Is this company a platform? Is it a content brand? Is it both? And if it is both, then define that new term and explain it. Because I think most disagreements and arguments and 
bad feelings inside of companies happen because of um, unmet expectations or or just you know missed expectations because somebody has an idea of what something should be, and then the truth is something else, and I think that creates a rub. So from my standpoint, the very first part is to actually have the leadership and be able to properly um, you know define things for your population, your employee population, and to be constantly you know create forums and platforms that they can share their perspective and their feedback. But to let them know, part of the leadership is you will be disappointed in some cases. You may be disappointed. And I think that idea of potentially disappointing an employee about something is has become a bit sort of taboo in a way, right? And I think that is it's it's a it it creates almost this impossible hurdle to to manage your um, internal communications and your culture internally. If you don't set those parameters, that there is a chance that you're not going to agree with what we've decided, and that's going to have to be okay, which is why I'm very – I feel good about what Spotify has done so far. My guess, this is my own theory personally, I don't think it will hold. I think they'll cave eventually to the people inside the company saying this is not okay, this is not okay. Here's another thing he said. Here's another thing he said. I know because both you and I have been inside and we sat in those chairs. And if you've had the same conversation now from not 60 people, 70 people, and not 70 people, 90 people, not 90, 500 people, eventually this is going to, I think, balkanize into a group large enough to make them do something different than what they're saying now. So it's really hard, but yeah, I would start with those two things. Uh, I, I agree with you. Well, going back to the, the thing you just last, the last thing you just said, which is, in the same way that you definitely have to align expectations with your internal employees, you also have to align expectations with talent content creators that are involved in the in the in the content that you are distributing within your platform, right? To me, hearing Joe Rogan say that I'm going to go on Spotify and they're going to have zero editorial control in anything that I ever do, there is immediate misaligned expectations because while these episodes that they were talked about and got raised didn't violate the content guidelines um, that they're bringing up. Do I think that Joe Rogan will violate the content guidelines soon enough or at some point? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And listen, we already kind of saw it. I mean, I think that point of him going and apologizing for literally spreading fake news, because exactly what it was, mm-hmm. to his own admission, that could be, I'm sure, if, I, if we look at their content guidelines, there's some element of that, that if you're just saying just false things, uh, at some point you violate the content guidelines. And so I think you are, they are going to get to a point where he is going to get censored. There is going to be an episode getting taken down because something that I said. And at that point, what do you do? Because Joe Rogan, unlike many of the smaller creators, he has a lot of, of power of what he says, what he does. And frankly, could, I'm sure, find a way to back out of that deal if he starts feeling like he's being censored anyway whatsoever. And he just comes off as a guy to me that you do that to him once and well, you're going to have a hard time getting past that one moment. 100%. I also think that it can negative, negatively affect the quality of the show if you've got a guy who is you know, notoriously calls himself, you know, to, to the earlier conversation, a moron constantly, but is somebody who is notoriously not engaged, right, with corporate machinations. He doesn't even, he doesn't look at his comments, right? He's, he's, he says it all the time. He's like, I never look at the comments of Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And even his conversations about his agent and managers, he talks as if those people, like he sees them once a decade and they make decisions for him. And he's like, sure. He just says yes or no, but he never actually engages things. He's the kind of person, at least what I envision of, who doesn't get involved in these kinds of things. And if he's forced to, I think that can negatively affect 
the quality of the kind of content that he's creating, right. if he's now going to have to be dealing about, wait a minute, like, am I, you know, upsetting this group inside of this company or whatever? So I think ironically, he's not good for certain limelights. And this is a limelight that can, I think, adversely affect the quality yeah, of the show. Yeah, it, it definitely feels like the type of content that just works better in this kind of pirate modality that you kind of mentioned earlier. Because uh, it really does give you the kind of freedom to be able to have this kind of discussion that he wants to be having. Yeah. Um, now, you know, w- one of the things that we have seen as it relates to some of the other platforms is trying to find that balancing act between freedom of speech, what is considered hate speech, and then also fake news. And those seem to be, I'm sure there's more buckets, but those seem to be sort of three core buckets that at least some of these platforms have historically tried to address. And, and if we look at the examples out there, because one thing we think about, is like, well, what's the best way to try to handle this? You could think about what YouTube does. Um, as an example, YouTube has what they consider their four R's, which is the first one is remove, which is content that just violates their guidelines, gets obviously removed from the, from the platform. The other R is raise, which is, is about sort of raising authoritative voices that are things like in breaking news or things that were really relevant people to be, be able to hear. Uh, rewarding trusted, eligible creators and voices, which is all about monetization, right? And then reducing the spread of content that brushes right up to, to their content guidelines. Now, it's different in the case of, of YouTube that is so driven by algorithms in terms of what you see next. But they definitely have used this sort of the levers of what content gets spread within the platform and then what gets monetized as a way to be able to create that balancing act. Not saying that it's perfect because they've obviously had issues. As a matter of fact, YouTube last year, I believe, got sued at the same time by both a, a very conservative group and an LGBTQ group at the same time for the same issues that feeling like their content was being uh, um, unfairly restricted within, within the platform. And they, and they cite that as evidence that of their neutrality, right? They'll, they'll say that. I've heard them, um, again, uh, um, I forget, I'm going to forget his last, uh, his last name is Pichai, but I forget his first name, the CEO of Google. Uh-huh. Or um, uh, the woman uh, who runs YouTube, and I'll remember her name in a second as well. Um, they've both, in in different ways, have cited the um, the idea that they're sort of lambasted from either side as testament to their neutrality. But when I hear those three, those four R's, what was the last one again? Uh, reduce, which is reducing the spread of content that brushes right up to their content guidelines. Right. I guess I'm okay. I would be okay with the first one, which is remove. If something violates it, remove. And you can always have these different, you know, which is another R, sort of remediation kind of efforts with the maker to tell them, hey, you can't do this again, whatever. I'm okay with that one. Um, I'm sort of okay with the last one. I'm not okay, in my in my opinion, with the with the middle two. The idea of rewarding or raising. Now, both of those things in and of themselves sound really good and innocuous and positive. But then I always ask myself the question of who's making the determination of who to raise and who to reward. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you could say, oh, well, it's an algorithm. By the way, that's even scarier. So like not even humans are doing this. But if, but the reality of it is they're people, people who are choosing who to raise up and who to reward. And to me, I think that is fundamentally the conversation or the challenge with these platforms is on these platforms, you kind of want to have a playing field, at least a good group, of, a huge group of people make an assumption that there's a playing field that's just level for everybody. Like everybody can be out there, good, bad, and there's a lot of bad content, but there's also a lot of good content and I can find it, right? And you can even help me find it by curating it and doing all this other stuff. But the moment where now you are putting your finger on the scale, 
for certain people or certain, um, and then monetarily to your point, right? right? Rewarding them. That just has all the hallmarks of going bad at some point to me, you know? But, but, but yeah. all platforms have that. Like literally those two dynamics, like, like, every single platform has that. That's fine. There's just, there isn't one that doesn't have that. Still scary for me. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, the fact that it's ubiquitous doesn't, doesn't, doesn't lessen the, uh, the concern that I have. Now, again, I'm also very practical. So I understand that things, you have a scale platform and these things are notoriously difficult to sort of rein in anything because even though these guidelines exist, and I agree that there's a policy and a process, I read the guidelines for YouTube and I read the ones for Twitter as well. I bet you I could find active content that violates this stuff myself. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's, and that's the argument that every single creator on those platforms will always make, right? It's like, well, why am I being penalized correct. when so-and-so isn't, right? And you're right. It's because it's really hard to actually adhere to those guidelines. Another approach that I found really interesting was what Twitter is doing, right? So they primarily, and they've obviously have obviously ratcheted up how aggressive they're doing, they're, they're being with this. And same argument here is who they apply it to becomes obviously the questionable thing. But, but their approach seems to be much more geared towards two things, either flagging content or trying to find ways to fact check it, right? The most maybe notorious of that is has been their interaction specifically with President Trump, who obviously has used Twitter as a political platform to roll out policy response, I mean, kind of across the board, right? There's two sort of moments that come to mind that were pretty, I think, pretty interesting. One was, and it was, it was earlier this year, when, on a tweet from President Trump, when he was talking about some of the, um, the protest and, and, and sort of resulting looting. And he made a comment in one of his tweets and says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Now that's, and that was obviously not just, that's not the whole tweet. There's a, there's a bigger part of that tweet, but that was part of it, which immediately Twitter flagged it. Um, and, but what they did is they basically um, added a button that allowed, that basically required people to have to click on it to view it. And the rationale was that, they saw that that tweet violated the, their rules uh, about glorifying violence was the reason why it got flagged. But they also determined that it may be in the public's interest for that tweet to remain accessible, meaning that because of, it's a president of the United States saying this tweet, for a big portion of the population, it's still relevant for them to see it, even if we feel that it violated our actual policies or our content policies, um, which I thought was really, really interesting. And the second one that they've done is also related to President Trump, is in, in response to some of his tweets, specifically about mail-in voting, what they started to do is add in uh, buttons. They basically give more information more information about mail-in voting alongside that tweet. So as a, as a mechanism to either fact-check or, at minimum, give a different point of view as to what is, what is happening there. But what about in those two? What, what is your take on at least the approach that, that Twitter has taken? Yeah, I I like the idea. There's there's a um, a newsletter that I've subscribed to. I guess it's not a newsletter. It's sort of like a well, yeah, I guess it is a newsletter. It's a daily uh, news briefing um, that I've subscribed to recently called the New Paper. I think I've mentioned it to you in the past. Yeah, you have. And the New Paper, I don't know who's behind it, and I'm not like endorsing them or anything. But the New Paper is playing on this idea that we're going to give you just the facts. Like literally, person A walked into building B. No spin. No spin. Said you know things C whatever. And so far, I've been I've been getting daily from them for probably six or seven months. So far, it actually has been that to my knowledge. It's literally been like the UN released X thing. Right? Sounds boring, by the way. It sounds really boring. That's that's <laughs> that's the thing. It's really good for 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 the following, which is getting a very high level snapshot of what actually has happened. It's very good for that. 
it's not good necessarily for developing a point of view around it unless you dive in and study at depth the thing that they're covering. But the thing that I do like that they do, which kind of goes into this Twitter thing that you just mentioned, is they have a little link at the bottom in certain of the facts that says additional context. Right. So, and, and context is something that we don't see a lot of. We see a lot of headlines, and then we see a lot of opinions about the headlines, right? R- right. What we don't see is, here's what happened. Oh, here's some additional context, well, right? What we see a lot of it is actually taking things out of context. That's all the time. Right, right. All the time. Right, but, but, but just as an example, right, content, you know, uh, guy walks into a you know, restaurant or something and is seen carrying an elderly woman out, okay? Well, did he kidnap her? Is she choking on something? Um, is that right. his, uh, maybe they're getting married, like, and he's taking her across the threshold. The context would be, and he was the woman's grandson and, you know, she was whatever, choking on a, you know, on a McRib or something, right? He was rescuing her, taking her to the hospital. The additional context I found to be really, really helpful and something that I think that we've lost is that layer of context. So what I like about the Twitter thing is it doesn't mess with, at least by this example, doesn't seem to mess with the thing, but says, hey, by the way, here's right. some additional stuff you may want to check out to help you shape some thinking about this. I definitely like that better than just not seeing the thing because sure. I feel like I can make up my own mind on some, on some stuff. And I, I, I think it's more helpful. So I still have some concerns about it, but, but I, I think that it's approaching something workable. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing there, if you could do that at scale, it definitely feels like the best way to do it where you're able to give people more information so that they can make their own determination as to what, what's real and what isn't, right? Um, I, I do I do think that's an interesting approach. The challenging thing for Twitter, of course, is you can imagine doing this at scale is really, really hard. But it's not just scale, Jesus. It's also sort of equal enforcement, right? Because that's, that's the that's other That's what I complaint. mean by it, right? Yeah. I mean, to me, doing that at scale means that I'm not just going to apply that to President Trump, but to anyone on Twitter making right. these kind of statements. Right. And I understand, listen, maybe it's the kind of thing that if the more, you know, sort of views that content gets, the sort of it hits this threshold, well, now it has to be looked at it and provided additional research because like to that point is if you get someone, you know, Joe Schmo puts up a tweet that a person sees, do we need to get, like, go and fact check that? Probably not, right? So I, I understand that point. It definitely feels much more a better way because ultimately it's about having more access to more information, not less. And I think it's a little bit of what we're saying earlier. Um, so I do think that approach is, is it is an interesting one uh, to look at. And the whole thing about taking things out of context, like we were recently, which I, I was kind of laughing about this, we recently were talking about another Joe Biden moment of where he was, I forgot where exactly he was, but Joe Biden goes up to the podium and starts playing a clip of Despacito on his, uh, oh, on his phone, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and it, all of the headlines were like hilarious, right? About look, Joe, you know, Joe Biden again goes out there and is like playing to Latinos, trying to, you know, connect in a like, really odd way. Now, what I didn't see in those headlines and in those clips was the fact that who actually introduced them was Luis Fonsi, the singer of Despacito. So he was playing the song, looking at Luis Fonsi, who was a singer, like, hey, listen, I have your song on my, on my phone. That difference in context of showing the, the previous 15 yeah. seconds right before he walked up, is a night and day story. Now, because is he still doing to, 
appeal to the Latino voters. Yeah, it sure can, he you is. can still say it's pandering or it's cheesy it's, or it's level whatever. Of pandering, but level of cheese for sure, but it's still but a significant different total level. Total difference, yeah, because you know the setup that happened right before. It exactly. was like, hey, maybe I, I want to joke with a, this guy. It was such a funny thing looking at it, and I was like, oh wow, that's 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 immediate. Like it's just amazing how big of a difference of what that story is can look like. But you simply rewind the tape, you know, fifteen seconds, and like, oh, that's right, that is the guy that actually sang the song and it's probably a little bit a little bit different sort of point of view associated with the, with that content. So one funny one unserious point and one serious point. The the unserious point is the thing that surprised me the most is he actually could work that phone. Yeah. And bring yeah, up yeah. bring up the clip. I'm like that's got all kinds of potential for going wrong. Let me find this on my iPhone, you know, right, uh, right. where where it is. And then the serious um uh sort of comment going to these policies that exist against hate speech and uh, fake news on all these platforms, and we have looked at all of them, is that missing, and certainly the ones that I saw, is because they categorize, right, on caste, race, sexuality. Those are sort of the protected groups in the sense that you, the moment you say something threatening or, or, or uh, you know, or th- that's inciting violence or whatever against those groups, but missing in that list of groups was political party. And I thought to myself, because they even give examples, Google does, right? Gives examples of, here's an example of the kind of phraseology that you can't use. And they kind of give an example, right? Like, oh, these X got what they deserved, right? They actually use that example. And I was thinking, how many times have I heard, oh, these Democrats got what they deserved or these Republicans got what they deserved. And I thought it'd be fascinating if they added to that list political party, because I'm telling you, they'd have to blow up like half the videos in the, uh, you know, on the platform. (laughs) I yeah. mean, but it's but it's amazing that that is sort of a uh, you know almost like a force field against these things. Is you can say that as as long as you know they're a political rival, you can say a lot of these things. They're still people. They still may be you know um, a, a, a racial minority. They still may be a sexual identity minority. But if you're attacking them on the basis of their political party, it seems like it's okay based on these rules. Yeah, it does. So that's that's actually a really interesting point in in terms of how that will get managed. I mean. I think the bottom line as it relates to this is that it, the, it is a very, very challenging balancing act that many of these these companies are, are struggling with trying to figure out how to be able to have these platforms that can feel or at least try to be somewhat unbiased uh, while having the editorial control, while trying to keep, keep good corporate culture and all in the context of this moment where a lot of companies are, are basically having to look at themselves in the mirror and say, have we been as active as we, as we could be in supporting our diverse employees, creating opportunities for them, creating environments where they feel they can th- flourish. And especially in the context when there is conversation, when there is content that frankly, to some of those same employees, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't feel very open. And we, and it's, I think it's easier for us to, in theory, talk about ha- having diversity of thought is much harder in practice when you actually have someone that is, that is speaking there, even if it's not hate speech, just some of those points of view are just so go 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 so against your core and what you believe in that it's just very very difficult to support. If you were going to package up your sort of key takeaways for folks who are sitting in those chairs right now, what would those be? I think some of what you said earlier are, are right on point. Right, is you have to be, you have to have clearly defined values and expectations of what it is that you're building and what it is that you what it is that you value the most as, as part of the values. Right. If and if part of this is we we value diversity and having different points of view represented as part of that diversity is really important to us because we want to have more dialogue, not less dialogue. 
then part of that is about sharing that and being really clear about that with your employees. Now, I think as part of that, you also have to find ways to, to directly involve your employees in that process. So they feel they have agency, they have say, they have the forums to have the conversation. Super important. Uh, I do think in terms of set expectation, what you were saying earlier is this notion that just because we get feedback from our employees doesn't mean that we're going to go the direction every single time. And I have to tell you, in every organization that I've ever been part of, in every team that I've ever run, I've had to have this conversation with at least one person every single time. Where I specifically said, listen, I talk about feedback all the time, but just because I value feedback doesn't mean that I'm just going to do every, what, you, yes. what you say every single time. That's just not realistic. Now, I think the way to handle that is important. And I think the way to handle that, those to me are always teaching moments to give additional context to help people understand and in many cases reinforce or further clarify why as a, as a policy, as a value that you're saying for organizations, you have what, you know, what they are and why they're so important to live up to them even in those moments that are difficult. That and then having, of course, consistent mechanisms for how you apply those values, how you create those content guidelines and having a, at least a, a process that can be applied fairly in a manner that's hopefully a little bit more scale so that it doesn't come across as only basically focusing on those voices that you know are a little bit more on the controversial side or, the, or that you less agree with. Yeah, 100%. Um, I mean, just to maybe expand on that, for me, it's the you know teaching and preaching of true diversity and it, just exactly what you just described. I think whether you're at a platform or you're at a content brand, I think the more that we include um, diversity of opinion and diversity of thought among the diversities, I just feel that it leads us to have a better culture and a better community um, because that means to me more dialogue and more conversation. The second thing for me is creativity is messy. Like the process of making stuff and creating content and doing art, especially things like music. Um, Cause that's the other thing I thought about for this whole Spotify thing is, you know, there's a lot of music on that platform. And if you start breaking down, you know, lyrics and cover art and like all this sure. stuff, we're going to find some people who disagree with something, but creativity is messy and realizing that and embracing that for all of its potential and communicating that to an employee base, if you're involved in the creative work, that there's just going to be things that are going to make some people very happy and other people uncomfortable. And we've got to not not worry about the sort of way outliers, but manage the kind of like interaction between things that are reasonable because we're going to occasionally disagree. And that's the last one, which you know you 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 touched on already, but the idea that you will sometimes lose. And I, you know, I give you credit um, in, you know, in your former CEO role because we've talked about this before, having those conversations, not a lot of leaders do. A lot of leaders don't do. And I think that you know, the idea of being able to say to somebody, I want to hear your opinion, and you need to be ready for me to not agree with you. You right. need to be ready to lose. I, I definitely don't think we're doing enough of that. So but those the, would but be the my- how is the really important part there, right? Is that giving people context. If you don't give people context, they're like, well, because it's my call. It's just, it's like speaking with, with I had to say, well, like with kids, right? Mm-hmm. It's simply like, you do it because I said so. That doesn't, doesn't work. work with adults. It doesn't work no. with, with employees. And people want to feel heard. And at least, once again, it's an opportunity to better communicate, to better understand each other, to better give context. In many cases, to reinforce or to create new values that better explain what what position you're taking as an organization. And that's the, the the very last one is that idea of context because that is super important. I know I brought it up, you brought it up with the Luis Fonsi example with Joe Biden, but um, I mean, context is also another way of saying that is giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? Because for the most part, there are circumstances that, um, you know, 
that are that surround every action that people take. And context doesn't necessarily mean another point of view or another opinion that you should believe instead of this. It at least helps shape the things that are happening around a particular subject. And you can only really get to context, in my opinion, with conversation and with nuance and like having forums like this, which is why I think ultimately, um, you know, these things are are important to discuss and they take some time. Well, Jesus, uh, we've wrapped up another episode. I uh, want to thank everybody for listening and for sharing and for rating and for uh, getting in touch with us to let us know how we're doing and what kind of subjects and provocative questions you want us to tackle next. So hit us up at blackbrown.us. We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.